Right, welcome back to the Me, Myself and Hopefully You podcast. My name is Tarek, a university student who is spending thousands and thousands of pounds on a degree uh, only to not know what he wants to do with his life. I started this podcast about a year ago uh, because of that exact same reason and a year later I still have no idea what I want to do with my life but I've realised I quite like interviewing uh, guests from all around the world and hearing about their stories and hearing more about what sort of advice they'd give uh, to their 20-year-old self. So if that interests you, then make sure you hit that follow button and give us a subscription. That doesn't even make sense. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Me, Myself and Hopefully You podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, this week I sit down with the man behind England's success at the Euros and the man behind England winning the World Cup in 2022. No, it's not Gareth Southgate. No, it's not Captain Harry Kane. It is the senior kit man of the England football team, Pat Frost. Pat and I talk more about locker room antics, his relationship with the players, how he ended up becoming a kit man for the England football team, his opinions on Southgate, and so much more. It is a short episode. Uh, If you want a part two, then make sure you go over that to their YouTube channel and comment on that YouTube channel that you want a part to and let me know what sort of topics you'd like us to discuss. But other than that, thank you so much and on with the episode. I want to start first off talking about um, how you got into being a kit man. So how does how did you um, sort of get into that role? Uh, well, I was really lucky. I had a transport business and in 2004, I had a phone call to say, could I take some stuff to Sweden? Obviously, I said yes. It turned out it was the football kit for the England under-19 girls. So I took it to Sweden, chatted to the head coach at the hotel, told her what I'd done, and she said, look, we haven't got a kit, man. Do you want to stay and help if you're stopping over here for five days? And that's how it all came about. That's how it first started for me. And what? so was that a voluntary role then? No, no. Or I was, was getting, a job? No, that was a job. I was getting paid to take the kit to Sweden. I was getting paid to stay in Sweden. But at this point, I had nothing to do with the team. It was only when I got there, the head coach says, do you fancy helping out? And that's what I did. Oh, so what, with the with the head coach of the under-19s team? Yeah. Oh, OK. When, what year was this? 2004. So 2004. So back then, it sort of, I mean, I'd assume that kit, being a kit man wasn't an actual job. There wasn't sort of a designated kit man, was there? Uh, well, there was, for, there was for teams and there was for England under-21s. England seniors, they all had kit men. It was just the youth squads. It would possibly be the goalie coach who would double up or the head coach and the the physio. It would be like that. They didn't have designated kit men in those days. So how how, how has your sort of career as a kit man moved on from, from then? Well, I served my apprenticeship with the youth teams of England. Um, I stayed with England on the 19 girls then for 10 years, did World Cups with them, did European Championships with them. Got on really well with a head coach who was really successful with winning trophies as well. And it just developed. I did the youth teams, went to England under-21s and got lucky with the England under with the seniors for Russia. Did you, or do you still follow the, the sort of, obviously now the, those under-19, um, that under-19 team would be, well, I mean, how old will they be now? They'll be like, well, they're actually, they'll be past retirement now, won't they? What well, am I talking about? It was it was players like Eniola Luko, um, yeah, yeah. Farah, um, Carly Telford, who's now playing for the seniors. So that's how it's gone on. Yeah, followed them all. Yeah. Steph, Steph Horton, people like that. And how how what do you what do you make of the the sort of 
because back in 2004, I, I doubt anyone was really watching women's football. Now it's sort of becoming a, a huge, well, it's becoming bigger, bigger and bigger. They're getting TV deals. You're seeing it a lot more on TV now. People are going to the games. What do you make of that? No, it's, it's brilliant. My, um, my middle son has just spent four years university. He's now got a full-time job as a strength and conditioning coach at Leicester City Ladies. You know, the, the investment now for the women's game is unbelievable. And the fact yeah. that they're paying full-time kit men, full-time PPC coaches is brilliant. And obviously the uh, the progress is uh, fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I, I've got this I've got this sort of weird theory that we're going to see a lot more people getting into or watching more women, the women's football just because a lot of fans are getting frustrated with how much money there is in the, in the men's game. And so because there's sort of less money in the women's game, it seems like it's more sort of old school football almost because there's less money tickets are cheaper you've got a bit more connection to the players do you think that 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 is what will eventually happen where you'll see loads of people sort of watching the women's game more yeah I don't think it's a weird theory you know Tarek I think it will happen yeah um in Sweden for instance I think some of the women's teams over there play to full houses of 10 and 15,000 I'm not saying that's going to happen next season but I think less my son told me Leicester had 6,000 at the King Power for one of their games not so long ago you know and that's quite impressive that so the, the attendances are gradually building and I'm not saying they're going to be paying in full houses next season, like I said, but we're, we're, they're well on the way. Yeah, no, it, it, you can definitely sort of see, I've started to follow it a little bit more as well. Um, obviously with United having their own uh, ladies team as well, that was massive because United were all, you know, arguably the biggest or if not the one of the biggest clubs in the world. Yeah, and yeah. for them to invest in a women's team um, was, was a huge step forward. Um, I want to now sort of move on to your your West Brom days uh, as a kit man. How when did that um, sort of happen, and, and what was that like? Because obviously West Brom is your is your team. Yeah, yeah, and you must have loved it. Yeah, no, I follow Albion home and away. I've got an away season ticket, uh, and the job came up one summer when um, I was just going on holiday, and I just applied for the. There was a vacancy that came up, and I just sent a rubbish email, and we were about to go on holiday, and I, I managed to do the interview over the phone the following day when the club rang me up and I started in 2011 and left in 2014 to go as assistant to um, Brazil for the World Cup with the senior men. So I did two and a half, three seasons at Albion. And were there any sort of... Because obviously you were there when... Well, the two years, I think, um, I can remember, you finished eighth and ninth? Or yeah, we did under... Yeah. yeah, Roy Hodgson. You were a good look chart on then, weren't you? But yeah, it seems no. I've gone a bit downhill since then. Yeah, we have. Yeah, in fact, when yeah. we uh, we actually finished eighth under Steve Clark, and with the seven teams that finished above us, it was basically like winning the league. You know, in those days, there was the top seven, the next four or five, and then the bottom half. And to finish eighth was unbelievable. It, it genuinely was like winning the league for us. It was, and I remember sort of watching West Brom at the time and thinking they. They were you were playing. It wasn't sort of the typical West Brom football that everyone thinks of now. You know, um, it was it, it was actually good football. You had players like Lukaku, um, a young Lukaku at the time, um, yeah. who, who just sort of coming through the ranks was looking like he was incredible footballer and is now um, one of the best strikers in the world. It was yeah, such yeah. an amazing team. I can and I can see it, you know the smile on your face when you think about those days of you know working at your favorite football team and your favorite football team doing so well in the in, in the Premier League. Um, you were also there on. So, as a United fan, this is a question I want to ask. You were there in in Sir Alex's last game, that five five, 
And yeah, which for me, even though we drew the game, we'd already won the league. And it sort of it summed up sort of Sir Alex's career of you know exciting football, you know, 10 goals in one game, you know, a last minute draw for Rio Ferdinand. It was it was mental. Um, and it, with young players like Lukaku who got the hat trick or whatever. What was that sort of game like? As in, especially sort of afterwards, um, and even and even during the game, knowing that it was everything was sort of centered around Sir Alex. Well, it, it, don't forget in the build-up, we're um, it's all about Sir Alex and United, but we're trying to finish eighth in the league that season, which is unbelievable. So all the focus is on United, and we're just trying to do our bit behind the scenes, you know, training as normal, preparing like you would do for any game. And I think we were 3-0 down after 25 minutes or something like that. Um, and it was quite an extraordinary day because there the were United fans, as you can imagine, absolutely flipping everywhere. And when I say everywhere, I mean there was more outside the ground than there was inside the ground. Yeah. Um, but it was. It was a great day to be part of. And uh, I printed up a shirt, actually, with Sir Alex with 1,500 on it, um, a big West Brom shirt, and uh, he got handed that. I, don't, I, I never know what, to this day what happened to it. But he got presented to him after the game because he had a party at the club afterwards. You know, some of some of his special friends were there at the end of the game, and they all went upstairs at uh, in our hospitality area. All right. So the, uh, in in so it was he went upstairs in the in the West Ham yeah. stadium. Yeah, they had oh, a party okay. at Albion. Yeah. And so w- with that draw, that solidified your that got you eighth, didn't it? Yeah, because I think Swansea lost at home to Liverpool. Something like that. So we, because it was between us and Swansea to finish uh, eighth. And um, um, what was the feeling sort of after? Because obviously there was a celebration for Sir Alex, but then you guys want to celebrate as well because it's like, absolutely, oh, yeah. It, so everyone after, was just celebrating. Yeah, there was. It, it, I think it took about twenty minutes for the United fans to disappear after Sir Alex had been out, and then we've all gone round and had the lap of honour as well because obviously we'd finished eighth. So we waited. We let them do their celebrations, and then we. We showed him the utmost, utmost respect and he'll acknowledge that and then we celebrated on the pitch ourselves. Yeah, I think it, it was amazing to see sort of, again, after the after a brilliant game, West Brom fans were great. Um, yeah. The West Brom team were, were, were amazing to that because they sort of were aware of, of, you know, this is the last game for one of, if not the greatest manager of all time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to I, I wanna ask you this sort of one question about... You're an insider, right? In 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 the world of football, you've got this sort of middle ground of you're this, you know, you're a super fan um, of of West Brom and of England, but then you also you're not sort of you're a super fan, but you're also not directly um, you, you don't directly impact the way the team plays. So you're like right in this middle. You're you're right in the middle as a kit man because you've got the communication there and you've got the access, but then you're also not got a load of access. What is sort of one thing that you wish you wished fans understood a little bit more about the game or took into consideration um, that you sort of can see as an insider? Well, um, I, AZ Boothroyd once said to me that the uh, touchline can be a very lonely place. And I, I was just following the Steve Bruce thing recently with uh, Newcastle. And I don't get it the way fans absolutely lambast their own coaches, other coaches, you know. I saw um, Nuno on Saturday, you know, when almost the whole crowd's booing. And I know what it's like for head coaches when things aren't going too well for them. Um, so I get a bit stressed about stuff like that. I don't like to see it. Oh, yeah. I mean, weirdly enough, that was the example that I was thinking about was the Nuno incident. And then before that, obviously, with Steve Bruce. Yeah. Um, and and uh, the onslaught that Steve Bruce in particular, because he was there for, so, for a lot longer than Nuno, um, the, the, the sort of onslaught that he got on social media, in the stadium, 
Um, and, you know, you can have your opinion on how good a manager is or whether you think the manager is suitable. But when it gets to when it gets as bad as it sort of got for, especially the likes of Steve Bruce, it, you know, it can it can have the, the worst impact on your on your mental well-being. Um, and from your sort of side, what how do sort of managers deal with that, that element of, you know, especially when you're in a situation where your own fans are viewing you as well? Is there a way that, men, that sort of different managers have dealt with that in the past whilst, whilst you know, you've been there? I'm not sure how they do it, to be honest, because um, you, you, if you try and put yourself in their shoes, just say, you know, I'm, they all start booing the kit man or they start booing you because they want you out of university. You can only imagine what it'd be like to hear or even be part of. So I'm not sure how they cope with it, to be honest. And I'm not having this, oh, well, they get paid loads of money. I, I don't give a shit how much they get paid. You would not want to be have that be put through, that hassle you get. Uh, I don't understand it. I, I don't know how they get through it, some of them. Yeah, no, I, I, it is. And, and it's weird because, so there was a picture, I don't know if you've seen, of Steve Bruce with, with his son at a, a, cricket, a cricket game. I saw it. And you could, you, you could see the sort of, his face was all, just over sort of a few days, his face had, had just looked so much better. Yeah. He looked mentally so much more refreshed. And you see it all the time with managers. Yeah. It was a great you know, picture, actually. It was a great picture to see. It was. It was amazing to see that he was sort of enjoying his time. He was just being able to sort of relax. Um, and he said it himself that, that that was probably his last job. So I guess he didn't really need to think about yeah. what's his next movie there. Yeah. But it is it is mental, sort of the, the youth that comes on your face. Like you see it with Mourinho a lot when when he leaves a job, then all of a sudden he looks like this happy go jolly young man that that's ready for the next yeah. challenge. Um, but yeah, no. I, I, do you ever sort of do you th- do you ever sort of get that get that pressure as well? Like because you know um, you're there, you're you're around the squad, um, and often. I mean, I, I don't know how it works as a kit man. Are you, are you employed by the the coach or are you employed by the club? So if the coach leaves, do you have to leave as well, like the assistant coaches, or or do you are you there for as long as the 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 uh, board want you? No, do you know what? If you read football books from coaching staff or physios or doctors, normally it's the kit man's the last man standing at clubs. They're normally, you know, unless the kit men. Is a is a muppet. He's always messing up. The kit man's normally going to be around. Um, so we we get pressure, but it's a different kind of pressure because, for instance, if I if I spell Kane wrong on the back of a shirt, it's going to make the papers. You 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 know you can't work with at the top end of the industry and not expect to make the papers if you make big mistakes. So you have to stay on your guard and you have to stay. You know you have to keep on your toes, kind of thing. But it's not nothing like the pressure that the coaching staff are under. What what's what's the biggest mistake that you've made as a as a kit man? Well, touch wood, I haven't really made any big mistakes. If you know what I mean, you know. Yeah. Um, and the, the the kit man at Man City once said to me, "As long as you've got match shirts, socks, and shorts at games, you can blag everything else. As long as you've got match kit for games, you're probably okay." But nowadays, we're taking a lot more than match kit. We you know we're taking warm up kit, we're taking all the medical kit, all the sports science kit, all the video analysis kit. There's a lot of stuff goes to games nowadays. So what is your... Because for me, when someone says kit man, I would have thought, oh, it's the person that probably prints the shirts and, and gets that sorted and uh, carries the, 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 all the equipment and then uh, all the sort of the, the T-shirts and, um, and whatever. And then that, what is the sort of role as a kit man, especially now in 2021? Well, uh, when you're on international duty, thankfully I've got um, the best assist, assistant I could ever wish for, you know. So we're... There's 50-odd members of staff, which we've got to make sure they've got clean kit every day. We've normally got 23, 25 players. We'll look after their boots as well and their trainers and flip-flops and 
make sure they've got clean training kit outside their bedroom doors when they wake up in the morning, collect their dirty kit in the evenings. You know, it's 12 and 15 nowadays now being a kitman at international level. I'm sure it's a little bit different at club level nowadays because they'll obviously train morning or afternoon. Um, and it is a little bit different when you're on camp, when you're away for 10 days or whether you've got European Championships or World Cups even, you know. And we do take an awful lot of kit and equipment with us. What's the... What's sort of... Because my understanding was that the players can just get... get So they can keep their kits every game. So is that not the case then? Do they reuse the same no, kit? They keep their match kit. We oh, they, okay. they get new match kit every game. As in other training kit, we'll launder that and they'll we'll use the same training kit. But match kit, they get new shirts, shorts and socks every game. So do players often just sort of give them out or do they do they keep all... Because obviously that's a lot of shirts to keep every single game. So I'm assuming, do they just give them out or do, well, do they give it to the club to get... No, no, no. So at club level, I'm not sure what the score is nowadays. At Albion, um, the players could keep them if they wanted to, but you got, you got charged for them. I don't know if they still get charged now. But a lot of clubs will charge the players for shirts because, you know, they're 100 quid a throw and it mm. gets expensive. If, uh, but at international level, um, they'll swap them, obviously, a lot of times. But a lot of players will keep two shirts per game and they'll take them home with them. They won't swap them at all. Yeah, I, mean, I saw the um, the interview with you um, at West Brom where you had a, a selection of, of international kits. Is that I still did, there yeah. at West Brom? No, it's not. The, <laughs> the shirts are with me because I don't work at Albion anymore. So I bought the shirts oh, home with me. So you got to take them then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. And uh, well, have you have you added any on um, after you? Because now you're obviously working with England. Yeah. Have, have you? Yeah. Have you managed to um, add to your collection? Unbelievably, I, I don't collect shirts at all. I'd, I'd only collected those. Um, Chris Brunt gave me one of his international shirts, so I hung it up. And then the odd player bought another one in and another one in. It, it went on from that. I don't actually collect um, football shirts at all. Never have yeah. done. Yeah. I saw because you're 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 the assistant that you mentioned before. Is that Neil? Yeah, that uh, is Neil. Yeah, yeah. So in in one of the interviews, I saw that both of you did. You both said that you don't collect memorabilia. No. Is there a reason why? Or do you think it's just because you're part of that generation that that just sort of lived every experience rather than trying to collect memorabilia? Or um, do you know what? I don't know because I could have a decent collection of shirts nowadays if I'd started when I uh, I started in the industry, but. It's just something I've never done. I've never collected them. Um, and I can't, there's no particular reason why I haven't. Oh, see, I don't get, I would collect everything. I collect everything now and I don't even do anything. <laughs> but I would, I'd collect everything that I could. I don't, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't. That's why I was, I was wondering, I, I was wondering if it was sort of a generation thing where like sort of you just lived in that moment or whether it was, it was, it was, it was just because you, you don't have a, a fancy of collecting, collecting no, shirts. I, I see. I do get well, that, shirts given to me from players and whatever, but I get a lot of pleasure in giving them to people who are then selling them off for charity and raising money for stuff like that. So I get a lot of enjoyment out of that. Well, so what's the collection of trainers behind you then? What's that? Uh, well, I just, listen, I collect Adidas trainers. It's just one of those things. You just love Adidas trainers? Yeah. Wow, yeah. you've got a lot of trainers. Yeah, I have, yeah. Do you wear them or do you? Or do you no, they're them? on show and I've got a couple of hundred pairs upstairs as well. Oh, what does your missus think about that? She hates it. <laughs> why, 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 why Adidas trainers? Uh, you know what? I blame Sporty Spice. Sporty Spice. Oh, yeah. okay. She started wearing them when they um, she was on stage, and I thought, oh, they look decent, so I started collecting them. 
So do you collect all the new ones or just the ones that take yeah, the fancy? I've got a bloke who sources, sources them for me, all the new colourways. Yeah, anything wow. that comes out, I pick them up. Oh, fair enough, fair enough. I mean, um, yeah, I'm sure the, the conversations with your with your missus when a new new pair comes in is, is every day. Yeah, every day. Yeah, we, one day she's going to say to me, "It's either me or the trainers," which will be a shame because I quite like her. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope she's not listening because she's the one who sorted sorted <laughs> you out on the Zoom call. Yeah, yeah. I need I need you to keep her happy because, or else I'm not going to get this um, <laughs> recording file. Um, I'm, I, w- I want to ask you about. Um, uh, obviously working for England as well now. Um, how, uh, how did you get selected for that once you were at West Brom? Do you apply for that? What, 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 how, does, how does that process work of, of being able to be a kit man for England? And is that a full-time thing or is it just when, when they're away for games? No, it's not a full-time thing. So um, obviously we, got, we meet up this Sunday for international break and then we'll, play, we'll meet for 10 days, but then we won't see anybody again till next March. So it'll be a four-month break. So no, it's not full-time. Um, and I had a phone call from Gareth. I, I was with the 21s at the time and they were making a couple of changes and I just got a phone call from Gareth asking me if I fancy going to Russia a couple of weeks before they went. So um, I'd worked with Gareth a couple of times. He'd been as a, a guest coach with Stuart Pearce when I worked for him at the under-21s. So I'd met him, but not really spoke to him, if you know what I mean. So do you do you get a little bit of starstruck when, when, he, when, when the England manager rings you or are you sort of like, oh, I'm used to it now? No, well, when he rang me, I didn't know who it was at the time because obviously I hadn't got his phone number. So I I, I went off on one because Albion had just been relegated in 2018. Yeah. Um, and you in a good mood to answer a call. Well, unbelievably, Southampton had beat Swansea on the Tuesday night, I think. And my phone went on the Wednesday afternoon and I'm at a cross-country race with my little. And so there's about 3,000 kids there. It's really noisy. It's windy. And my phone went, um, and he and the, he, he started the conversation with, uh, "Sorry about um, Albion getting relegated." And I did at, th- at this point, I still didn't know who it was. So I went off on one, and I slaughtered Albion, I slaughtered Pardew, I slaughtered Bulis, <laughs> and I went. I actually, do you know what? I haven't even got your phone number. My phone, I don't know who it is. And he went, Gareth. <laughs> I'm like, Gareth, yeah, Gareth Southgate. And for about three seconds, well, what seemed like ages. I just went quiet and I went, oh, bloody hell, sorry, Gareth. He said, well, now, listen, I'm just ringing to see if you want fancy coming to Russia as kit man. So, yeah, it was one of those. He was just, he was just hoping for a 30-second phone call. He's got so many other people to call, but now he's hearing you ranting uh, about, about ex- West Brom. exactly how it was. Oh, I that's brilliant, that. That's brilliant. The fact that you sort of carried on going, even though you had no idea who was on the call, they just they just mentioned how... Mm-hmm. It's like it almost... It was like the, it, it was the last... Thing to just snap at you and you're like right I'm just gonna I need to get all this yeah. all this out that's exactly how it was so when you first went what was the sort of biggest difference that you saw um uh, you know going to the England camp compared to previous camps that you'd worked at or pre- previous uh, clubs that you worked at well obviously it's um you've got bigger name players at a senior level and uh you've got a bigger there was 35 40 members of staff you know it's, it's quite a big party to be looking after. Um, and everything was packed up, ready to go to the World Cup. So it was not, it was at the act of transition from the previous kit man was quite good. It, everything was quite organized. So uh, it was reasonably straightforward. Yeah. Because well, obviously, because it's on such a big 
a bigger level in the international stage I would assume that everything runs so much more smoother everything's on a, a much bigger scale and like you said it's, it's, it's with superstars with some of the world's best not that yeah. West Brom don't have any of the world's best but yeah. you know um, uh, some, some of the world's best players um, in terms of we mentioned before sort of about the onslaught that managers often get and I feel like Southgate um, has definitely been one of them that has gotten um, and maybe it's slightly stopped since since the Euros, has been one of the managers that does get a lot of onslaught. Very unfair criticism, I think. Um, what what do you make of that? What do you make of Southgate as well as a, a, as, as a man and then as a manager as well? He's the absolute nicest bloke in the world to work for. Absolutely. Just a really, really nice bloke. And he gets everything we do. He appreciates the kit, man. He appreciates his physios. He appreciates his video analysis people. The team ops, the comms, he looks after everyone and he makes an effort to speak to everyone. And the fact that you've had to ask me about, you know, you know, we got to semi-final against in Russia. We got to the Nations League. We got to the Euros final. You've only got to look. I think we're number four in the world. Yeah. When we were number 15, there's, you know, he doesn't need to answer any questions from any critics. Not even, you know, and I'm not biased. I'm just dealing with facts here. You know, well, so. I think... I- well, I mean, uh, his his sort of results so far speak for themselves. Um, uh, but do you think it's everyone that speaks about Southgate? I, I, I compare Southgate and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer quite similarly. Like they say that they're both, they come across very nice people. And there's this perception, especially amongst fans, that you want someone ruthless, that sort of hard hitting, that, you know, straight face, um, like very Sir Alex, you know, sort of um, uh, gives Sir Alex vibes, I guess. Do you think that sort of, is a part of why people criticise him um, a bit too much? I don't know. I've never heard the bloke raise his voice once. He's never had reason to, you know. It, whatever he does works. The, the players can't wait to come on camp. It's brilliant on camp. The atmosphere's brilliant. The dressing room's brilliant. You know, whatever he's doing, he's doing it right. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. He's not going to change for anyone, I don't think. I feel like with with especially you know you mentioned there sort of the players get excited to come to England, um, and I think in comparison to sort of previous England managers and England squads, there's been previous ones have seemed a bit like clicky, like a lot of players don't really care about playing for England. But Southgate has seemed to now got the players caring about playing for England now. It seems like they all want to play for England. Um, they are, they're all close with each other through social media or whatever. Um, and it seems like a more a much happier camp that that Southgate has has created. Have you noticed the sort of maybe difference between the 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 first World Cup and then uh, the the 2018 World Cup and then the Euros? Was there much of a difference? Did the did the squad feel a bit more united than in 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 the, in the first World Cup? Well, he he built it up before we went to Russia, and to be fair, it's carried on. And I'd say it went, it actually stepped up another level while we were in um, in the in England for the Euros. He's he's got everything bang on. You you've only got to ask the players. You the players say exactly the same. Yeah, no, I mean you can definitely especially even as a fan because me, I mean I'm I'm only uh, twenty years old, so I've not had loads of crazy England experiences. But I remember before Southgate, I just didn't care about England. I just thought it doesn't seem right. It just it's always disjointed. It's it's quite obvious that Rooney doesn't get along with you know, Lampard or whatever. And like, it just, it just didn't seem like it was, it was sort of, um, it was a togetherness. But then now every time England get together, it feels like they almost leave their club allegiances behind now. And they go, right, we're focusing on England now. Um, and it's England or nothing now. And, and it's, 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 it's amazing to see. 
Um, we we spoke about the Euros there. I want to ask you about that. What was the what was the feeling like during during the Euros? Because as a fan in, in England and we, you know with my friends, we all felt united after a year or so of COVID. We were all together. We were allowed outside. But as someone that was on the inside, what what was it like throughout the whole process? Was it just a competition? Did you not think about things like that? No, it was it was actually really. You, look, I'm really lucky with what I do. I know that there's millions of people who jump in my shoes tomorrow and what have you. So I know how lucky I am. And, and, you know, I enjoyed absolutely every minute of it. And our thought process was we were going to win it. Simple as that from day one, from when we met up in Middlesbrough and had the two friendlies to half time against Italy, we were going to win the Euros. And it was simple as that. So when we didn't win, you can imagine what it was like in the dressing room afterwards. It wasn't um, a particularly nice place to be for an hour or so. Was that 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 in that final um, when when it went to penalties? Obviously, England haven't had the best um, sort of history with penalties. We had the 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 game against was it Germany that we beat on penalties. It was, wasn't it? Uh, was it Germany that we beat on penalties? In the Euros? No, was it? No, it was in the World Cup that we beat someone on penalties, wasn't it? We like beat Colombia on penalties. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So, so we had the recent success, but in terms of the grand scheme of things, we weren't yeah. very sort of good on penalties. When it went to penalties, was there a feeling amongst the sort of players and the coaches of, oh no, we're going to penalties? No, absolutely not. I mean, we've been practicing penalties, practicing penalties every day, you know. So, I I can't decide if we were closer to winning the World Cup. Uh, the the Euros when we were one nil up with half an hour to go, or when we were three penalties away from winning. I can't decide where we were closer to winning it, but okay. you know it's one of those things, isn't it? Yeah, no, I mean, it, uh, yeah, I think everyone's going to remember where they were during that penalty shootout yeah. for pretty much the rest of their life, unless we go on to Indian. Hello, bet you weren't expecting that. Now, just a quick reminder, make sure you head over to the Me, Myself and Hopefully You podcast YouTube channel and hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on new episodes. If you're listening on Spotify, give us a follow. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure you leave a review. Thank you so much for watching so far and on with the episode. Sorry, listening so far, not watching. Um, sort of the aftermath of, of, the, of the, the final, obviously, we lost on penalties. Um, and in particular, we had um, three young um, players who had, who had um, gone on to miss their penalty. Um, Jaden Sancho, Marcus Rashford, and then Bukayo Saka. And they received some, some horrific abuse at the time. How did the sort of other players support those three, you know, in particular, as, as well as sort of looking after themselves? Because obviously losing a final, it must have been, it must have been awful. Yeah, well, the coaching staff had a big part to that. Um, because they made sure they were looked after immediately afterwards. But also, when we came in the dressing room after the final whistle, the um, Prince William came in with his son. So they were in there for 20 minutes. So they'd got time to digest what had gone on with the penalty shootout while the Prince was talking. And in this time, myself and Neil, were actually already starting to pack up. So we weren't in the dressing room at this point. Um, But the Prince chatted for 10, 15 minutes. uh, And then the players, because then... The, uh, we were in a bubble up until this point. The bubble then finishes almost then, so the lads can then go and see their wives and girlfriends for the first time in um, almost five, six weeks. So they disappeared then outside, and we then cleared up while they were lads were on the pitch uh, speaking to their families. 
Um, and then they came back in, showered, and it's almost like, that's it, lads, see you in September. It was one of those, you know. Yeah. What Was there a... Because obviously, you know, Southgate in particular came under criticism for bringing those... Um, bringing Sancho and um, uh, Rashford on at the time. They barely had a kick of the ball. Um, and, you know, it seemed like it was purely for penalties. Was that the thinking? Um, are you aware of the thinking between the coaches um, of, of why they were brought on so late in the game? Uh, no, I th- we're literally on there making sure all the players have got everything and we're gearing up for the um, penalty shootout. We're trying to make sure that everyone's got their right clothing and because it's only the 11 that are allowed, who are on the pitch at the time, are allowed on the halfway line for the penalty shootout. Everybody else has to be off the pitch. So we're trying to do our jobs and making sure everyone's got everything and there's nothing left lying around, boots, shin pads, and anyone's pinching anything from the stands, you know. So we're almost concentrating on our job and oblivious to what's going on. We're watching the game, but I'm not thinking, oh, he's bringing Marcus on or Jaden on and bringing, you know, whoever off. We're just literally concentrating our jobs. What goes on the pitch is way above our pay grade and stuff like that, you know. So, and five minutes ago, as a fan, you know, we're fans as well, don't forget. We're just praying that we are the school winner or we hang on because I think Italy had come on strong, hadn't they? So, yeah, we were concentrating what we were trying to do, really. Is that quite frustrating? Because you know you're there, and you know you're you want to you want to almost be there as a as a viewer, so you can just take everything in. But then at the same time, you're there. You're that's your job. You're there as a job. Um, so you've got to be thinking about other things as well. Is, does it sort of sometimes take it away from the game? You know, were you doing other things during the final? Were you thinking about oh well, in ten minutes I'm gonna have to go do this whilst the game on? What like? What's well, that like? No, you are thinking that, but trust me, when we scored after three minutes, was it something like that? Yeah. The, the limbs on the bench was the same as the limbs on the terraces. Um, we celebrated it just like everybody else did. So, you know, you, you get to do that, but also you, you're still making sure that while the game's going on, no one's going down with a, a head injury and get blood on the shirt and you've got to change shirts and stuff like that. So you're always keeping an eye on what's going on. You've got to keep your um, eye on the ball kind of thing. And... Uh, is there sort of, do you have to do any sort of preparation? Because it's obviously a final and there's a trophy at the end. Is there any preparation that is specifically for finals that you have to do that you don't do for other games? Or is there no, 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 we'll set up a dressing room exactly we would if it was a semi-final or the first game in the group. Um, nothing changes for us. Everybody gets the same stuff. You know, that um, Jordan Pickford would have had the same stuff on his peg for the final as he did for the first game in the group stage or a, or a friendly in the, one of the warm-up games. You know, nothing changes for us. Everything is still the same. We have a routine and we stick to it. Right, OK. And, um, and when it comes to the individual players, are, are there any players that sort of want certain things that in a certain way or just because of superstition or whatever? Uh, no, no. some pe- some people have... Um, some of the players will have undershorts, some of them under, under vests, some of them won't. Some of them might, you know, they'll have certain kind of drinks put aside, um, cereal bars, gels... Jordan Pickford likes chewing gum, for instance. We always make sure he's got some on his peg. So nothing out of the ordinary, if you know what I mean. Everything that we've always got, then it's in the dressing room. And is that all sort of... So do you, are you aware of that? Is that on a spreadsheet somewhere? Like, you know, where, what everything need, everyone needs? Yeah, so well, on? you know, when I said I've got the best assistant in the world, I, yeah, I wasn't God. kidding, I have. And he keeps everything neat. Everything's on spreadsheets. Everything's listed. And if anybody ever changes a size, he'll make a note of it there and then. So we know what we're doing for the next one. It's all. Um, he's very, very organised. Yeah. No. It seems like it seems like Neil is um, is is probably the best assistant in the world. It, 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 from, from, from what what you say, did you work with him at West Brom as well? 
he is an Albion supporter, yeah. So yeah. did, were you were you with him at West Brom as well? Yeah. No, no, he's he's a no. he's an Albion fan. He doesn't go to as many games as me, but he's an Albion fan. Oh, okay. So how how does that work then? In the sense that, like, obviously, if you're a manager, you take your coach, your assistants with you. When you're a kit man, is sort of all the other kit men um, appointed by someone else, and you just no, go and I, got to work together? No, the, 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 some kit men stay at clubs for years and years and years, and um, the kit man who was at Albion before me. So there was only two kitmen at Albion. There's only ever been three kitmen at a whole club. One was there since 1972-2011. I went from 2011 to 2014, and then the lad took over from me. So there's only ever been three kitmen at Albion, as far as I know. First team, there's been the odd assistant here and there, and the lad who's there now has got an assistant. But head kitmen, there's only been three in the whole since 1970. You've kind of ruined it there, because you only stayed for a few years. No, I did, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What so why why so did you leave because of the England role or Yes, yeah. It was I had to choose. I couldn't really do both, unfortunately. Um and you never you're never gonna get rich being a a club as a kit man, I don't think, you know, the money's okay and what have you. But it's also hard work because you lose every weekend except for two maybe in June. Every weekend's taken up and when you've got yeah. a missus and kids, you know, it's tough. And what, what's the impact been on them then, um, uh, you know, on uh, sort of working with England as well? Um, what, what's the impact been on the family? Well, I've been married nine times. Have you? No, I'm joking. All oh, right, I was going to say, <laughs> I was like, what? No, it's, you know, you just, they, they know the sport. I don't know sport. why I believed that. I, I, that was such a stupid thing to believe. It didn't process fully, I think. And I, I was like, what? You've been married nine times? No. Oh. So, yeah, it does impact and you have to try and find the um, happy medium. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, I want to ask you also quickly about... Um, what was it I wanted to ask you? About um, your... Because uh, you mentioned earlier about how it's not a full-time thing doing it with England. What are you doing outside sort of uh, camp and when you're, not, when you're not with the England squad? Well, in between uh, October meet-up and this meet-up, I went to Belgium with the under-23 ladies. So I've got a transport business and we look after... We move kit around for England, Scotland and Wales. Um, and there's 25 squads with the England with their disability squads as well. So there's kitmen out all the time. There's kit got to be shifted all the time. So I managed to keep myself busy driving across Europe. Um, oh, all right. So I, I'm lucky enough to work with Tottenham, Man City and West Ham, and we do their Champions League and Europa League games. So we, I drove out to Holland for Tottenham a couple of weeks ago for their Europa League fixture in Arnhem. Um, and I'm hoping I'll go to, I think they're in Slovenia next or somewhere like that. For their next uh, fixture, so yeah, I keep busy. Yeah, all right. I've got I've got one more question, and oh, I've got two more questions, and then a sixty second sort of quick fire round. Um, my my first question is, um, what do you what do you make of uh, England's chances in the twenty twenty two World Cup? Uh, I'll be disappointed. <laughs> well, now listen, I don't know. I will be going over there to win it. Simple as that. Can we win it? Yeah. Can somebody else win it? Of course, I can, but. We're going over there to win it. Um, and what? And do you reckon um, we're going to have sort of the, the the same sort of squad, or are you, is there a particular player that you're looking at in the Premier League that that you're thinking, ooh, this one could be could do well? Well, everyone who was um, at the Euros, they're all going to be available. There's no old, there's no one coming to the end of the career. They're all going to be available for Qatar. So if someone's going to break into the squad, they're going to have to have a good season, aren't they? Because um, everyone who was at Russia will be available for Qatar, so it's going to be another strong squad again. 
going to be a weird one in Qatar because it's in such a weird time of the year. It's going to be December time. Yeah. Um, does that mean you'll miss Christmas with your family? No, I think the final's on December the 17th. All oh, right, okay. So you'll be back for Christmas then? Yeah. Oh, that's all right then. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, um, so my final question before the, the quick fire round is, is what sort of advice would you give? So I started this podcast when I was about, uh, last year because I was just sort of thinking about what I wanted to do with my life and, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. What sort of advice would you give to your 20-year-old self if you could sort of go back and, and give some sort of advice? Um, well, I always tell my children, because, you know, they're in second education and university, I always say, don't worry about results and tests and stuff like that. I said, if you're nice to people in life, no matter who it is, you're going to get on. As long as you're nice to people, you will get on. And that is it for this week's episode of the Me, Myself and Hopefully You podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I think this was one of, if not the biggest episode yet. And it's pretty much exactly a year since I started this podcast, which is mental. Um, If you enjoyed today's episode, then please do consider hitting that follow button on Spotify, leaving a review on Google, uh, Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts, and subscribing over to the Me, Myself and Hopefully You podcast YouTube channel. Uh, if you want a part two, Pat said he's up for it. I really want to do it. Then make sure you head over to the YouTube channel and comment down below the topics that you'd like us to talk about. I've got a whole list of topics I'd want to talk about uh, with Pat, but I want to know what you guys want us to discuss. Uh, And yeah, thank you so much for listening. Have a great week. Until next time.